Well, could I ask you to please take your Bibles and to turn to Revelation chapter 19. And uh, as you do that, if you still have your, your diagram, uh, your Revelation diagram, I'm going to make reference to that today as well. So keep that before you. If you don't have one of those diagrams or you lost yours, uh, there are a couple copies at the back there on the little stool. So Feel free to just quickly get up, uh, get up and, and take one so that uh, when I refer to different blocks and colors at the end of the rows, you're not lost there. But hopefully this diagram is a help to you as we are working our way through the book of Revelation. But let's read together Revelation chapter 19 this morning from verse 11 to 21. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold a white horse, the one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses." From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which, <clears throat> excuse me, with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. Come together for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh." This is God's word, and uh, we have already prayed that God would help me uh, and help you uh, as we come to this portion of his word today. I am really glad to be back with you again this morning to continue our series in the book of Revelation, and today we're going to finish chapter 19, and with that we're going to finish the, the sixth cycle uh, of visions as you would see in your diagram. And then next week, we're going to head into the final straight as we begin the seventh cycle, the bottom row on your diagram, the seventh cycle of visions in chapters 20 to 22. Next week, we are finally going to get to the whole topic of the millennium. And so whether you are premillennial or postmillennial or amillennial, or maybe you just aged between 20 and 40 and you are a confused millennial. <laughs> Hopefully you'll all come back next week and we will benefit as we look at this subject in Revelation chapter 20. 
But today we're going to look at the second half of Revelation 19. And due to the fact that we've had a number of weeks uh, between uh, looking at the first half, we might miss the, the massive contrast between these two halves of the chapter that we would have perhaps seen if we did them one week after another. Just to remind you, Revelation chapter 19 verse 1 to 10 was all about the praise and worship in heaven over the great marriage feast of the Lamb. And we saw last time that heaven rejoices over the judgment of Babylon from chapter 18. Heaven rejoices over the marriage feast of the Lamb. And heaven rejoices over the gospel invitation which goes out to all to come. And so verses 1 to 10, uh, if you look at your diagram, is seen in that little green block at the end of the sixth vision. It takes us from the, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ into eternity in heaven. All who are his saints united to him in glory in this marriage celebration which will continue on into all eternity. But as we've seen with all the previous cycles of visions from number two to number five, each of the visions ended in those yellow blocks at the end of the row with a glimpse into the final day of God's judgment against his enemies. Just look back at the yellow block at the end of the second cycle. Uh, the sixth and the seventh seals were opened in Revelation 6 and 8, and we saw all the peoples of the earth hiding in caves, calling the mountains to fall on them. Who can stand against the day of God's wrath, they cried out. And there were peals of thunder and rumblings and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. Then at the end of the third cycle, we had the seventh trumpet that blew in Revelation chapter 11, verses 15 to 19. And again, we saw the wrath of God coming against the nations against all those who do not fear his name, and they are destroyed. And again, there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Then again, at the end of the fourth cycle, in Revelation 14, we saw another perspective on this final day of judgment, with one like the Son of Man coming on the clouds, and he put his sickle in to reap the harvest of mankind. Believers to eternal life and unbelievers were, were reaped as, as ripe grapes to be trodden in the winepress of God's wrath. And then again, at the end of the fifth cycle of visions, we have the description of the seventh bowl being poured out, bringing cosmic disintegration when Jesus returns. Cities and nations collapse. Babylon, we were told, was made to drink the wine of the fury of God's wrath. And again, there was flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, a great earthquake, and a great plague of hail. So four times already, we've seen the great and terrible day of God's judgment described for us at the end of each of these cycles of parallel visions. Each description was rather limited and brief. Each one came from a slightly different perspective, but collectively they are all describing the same event, namely the judgment of the wicked when Jesus Christ returns. Now as we come to the end of chapter 19, and, and again we'll see this briefly in chapter 20, we are given the most detailed descriptions of this great day of God's vengeance. As heaven is opened here for John and he's given the final revelation of this day of judgment. 
Chapter 19, we will see today, focuses on this day from the perspective of earth or the, the physical realm as Jesus rides out and he makes war against all his enemies on the earth. And then chapter 20 will reveal the details of the same day from the perspective of heaven, from the spiritual realm, as Jesus then sits on his great white throne and he judges the souls of every person who has ever lived. Now before we jump into our text today, there's just one more important truth which we need to see which helps to correctly frame the events that are described in these verses. We're going to see a little bit later that John's vision here draws heavily on the prophecy of Isaiah. And three times back in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah foresees two future events. Let me read one description to you. We have seen this before, Isaiah 61 verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Now we don't need to guess about what Isaiah saw in Isaiah 61 because Jesus himself in Luke chapter 4 Verse 18 and 19, takes the scroll in the synagogue, finds this passage, reads it about himself, and then proclaims that the year of the Lord's favor has been fulfilled in his first coming. And so ever since Jesus came to this earth to die on the cross, to rise again, his subsequent outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost you and I have been living in the year of the Lord's favor. But the other part of Isaiah's prophecy, which Jesus did not read, he, he stopped reading halfway through verse 2 of Isaiah 61, is all about the day of vengeance of our God. The year referring to a long period of God's favor, the day pointing to a singular moment in history. That is the day of the Lord Jesus' second coming. And John's visions in Revelation have been slowly lifting the veil on what this day of vengeance looks like for those who reject Christ. But now John finally sees heaven opened and the details of this day of vengeance is made clear. So turning then to Revelation 19 verse 11 we read that as John saw heaven opened, the first thing he sees is the great rider on a white horse in verses 11 to 16. Now, we've just read the verses, but I want us to see collectively as we survey these verses that John's description of this rider on a white horse is threefold. He answers three questions for us about this rider. Who is he? What is he like? And what is he doing? Is that not me? Okay, let's go back to just, there we go, just leave it there, thanks. All right, so who is he, what is he like, and what is he doing? So let's start with his identity. Who is this rider on a white horse? Well, it doesn't take much to realize that the one John is describing is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Three times in these verses, John tells us what his name is. And each time the name is different, and yet all three names are clearly the names of Jesus. 
Let me show you that in verse 11. He is called faithful and true. Now this is a title given directly by Jesus to himself back in chapter 3 verse 14. He is the faithful and true witness. Then in verse 13, he is called the word of God. Again, this is a title which John himself gave us in his gospel. John 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. So we know that the word of God is a clear reference to Jesus himself. And then in verse 16, we are told that he has a third name. His name is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Again, this is a title which has been directly attributed to Jesus Christ in chapter 17, verse 14, where we are told they will make war on the Lamb, that is Jesus, and the Lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. So that was not a very difficult symbol uh, in John's vision for us to understand, certainly much simpler than many of the other symbols that we've encountered in his vision. But verse 12 also tells us one more thing about his identity. It says he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Now the commentators give us various suggestions about this secret name of the rider on the white horse. One says that this could be the unpronounceable name of Yahweh from the Old Testament times. In other words, the name of the God of heaven, the covenant God of Israel, is written on him. Another says that in the ancient world, to know a person's name was to exercise control over that person. Thus, the angel that wrestled with Jacob did not disclose his name to Jacob in Genesis 32. The angel of the Lord did not tell Samson's parents his name, just telling them that it was wonderful in Judges 13. The point being that no one is able to control or manipulate the one on the white horse. But perhaps what Richard Phillips says I think is most helpful to me that this secret name of Jesus is simply there to remind us that there are depths in the deity of Jesus Christ that are beyond our fathoming. There are resources in his infinite being that his enemies have scarcely considered and a wisdom that is deeper than the wells of creation. So our rider on the white horse is Jesus Christ. He is faithful and true. He is the word of God. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And he is the one who both reveals God to us and yet can never be fully known. Tom Schreiner says there is a sense in which we know Jesus and a sense in which he is hidden from us. He is both imminent and he is transcendent. He is near to us and he is hidden from us. We truly know God through Jesus Christ, but we do not know him exhaustively or fully. That's our rider on the white horse. In the second place, these verses also answer the question of what is he like? And we see in verse 12 that his eyes are like a flame of fire. That speaks to us of the fact that Jesus, who is the one who judges in righteousness, his gaze is able to expose everything for what it really is. We, we see this description of fire on the day of judgment being explained in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12 to 14. 
that fire will test the genuineness of our works in order to expose what is wood and hay and straw, that which will be burned up like chaff and that which is gold and silver and precious stones and will last. His eyes are like flames of fire. This description of Jesus as the righteous judge is also drawn from Isaiah chapter 11 where we read, his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see and by what his ears hear. In other words, Jesus won't judge on a human level by outward appearances, but with righteousness he shall judge. In other words, he will know the truth of the matter that he judges, and he will decide with equity for the meek of the earth. So what we learn here is that Jesus cannot be mocked. He cannot be hoodwinked on the day of judgment. You might put forward a wonderful Christian persona that comes to Honey Ridge week after week, but on that day, his eyes, like flames of fire, will expose everything, even the deep recesses of our hearts. The next description of what he is like is also found in verse 12, which tells us that on his head are many diadems, which is symbolic for his sovereign rule over all the world. Again, one commentator explains the word diadem signifies ruling authority. You'll remember back in chapter 12, the evil dragon appeared with seven diadems trying to claim a sovereignty over the earth. Later on, the beast appeared with 10 diadems on his horns in chapter 13. Now in John's day, these crowns, these diadems, were literally ribbons that were wrapped around the sovereign's head, and each ribbon bore the name of the territory over which he ruled. So when Jesus ascended into heaven after his resurrection, Ephesians 1 tells us that God the Father seated him, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Jesus thus appears in judgment, not to become ruler over all, but already possessing ultimate lordship wearing many diadems of rule and dominion on his sovereign head. What he is by right, he now enforces by actual rule, taking the ends of the earth as his possession, end quote. The third description in these verses of what he is like is found in verse 13. He is our great saviour. Now we read in verse 13 that the rider on the white horse is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And there are two main views as to what this signifies. The one view says that the blood on Jesus' robe comes from his enemies, whom he has crushed in his holy wrath. And this view is strongly supported again from Isaiah chapter 63. Isaiah 63 verse 1, listen to these verses. Who is this who comes from Edom? Edom represented the pagan world. In crimson garments from Bosra. He who is splendid in apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. 
But why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. There is no doubt amongst the commentators that this passage in Isaiah 63 is certainly part of the backdrop to John's vision here in chapter 19. But I think there is an equally strong case to be made that the blood-stained robes of Jesus is a reference to his own blood that was shed for his people on the cross. Let me give you just two reasons to support this view. In verse 11 and 12, we see that Jesus is riding out of heaven on a white horse before the battle with his enemies has taken place. He will only destroy his enemies in verse 21. And so this robe dipped in blood seems to have come from out of heaven. And this would tie in to the earlier visions of Jesus being described as the lamb who was slain and yet is now standing. But secondly, we are told in verse 14 that the armies of heaven arrayed in their own fine linen, white and pure, follow him out of heaven on their white horses. And Revelation chapter 7 verse 14 tells us that the saints in heaven have, their, have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The shed blood of Jesus is what clothes us in white. So which one is it? Is it his own blood shed on the cross or is it the blood of his enemies trampled under his wrath? Well, I think the symbolic nature of revelation allows for it to be both and perhaps intends for it to be both. You see, if you are a believer, the crimson robe of Jesus on his white horse is a symbol of his blood shed for you, which clothes you in the white garments of his righteousness. But for the unbeliever here this morning, that same crimson robe is a warning to you that unless you turn to Jesus for salvation, he will trample you in the great winepress of the fury of God's wrath. Steve Wilmshurst writes, either judgment is done on him at the cross as a substitute in your place, or failing that, judgment is done by him as people's unforgiven sins send them to hell. So we've had two of our questions about this rider on the white horse answered. Who is he and what is he like? But now John answers the third question, what is he doing? And verse 11 tells us up front that he is riding out in righteousness to judge and to make war against his enemies. Verse 14 says that he is leading the armies of heaven. All the saints have been purchased by his blood. Now throughout the series in Revelation so far, I've repeated almost weekly, what? The lamb wins. The lamb is all the glory. And now we see the lamb who was slain riding out in victory as the mighty warrior king. He's leading the hosts of heaven in his wake as he judges in righteousness and makes war on his enemies. 
Verse 15 goes on to tell us that from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Did you notice something interesting in verse 15? Notice the order. Jesus will kill his enemies with the sword of his mouth and then he will rule over them with a rod of iron. How can you rule over someone who is dead? Unless, of course, death is not the end. Verse 15 speaks of both the earthly and the spiritual nature of Christ's victory over his enemies, both the temporal and the eternal. The wicked will be destroyed from the face of the earth when Jesus returns to judge, and then they will spend eternity under the punishment of his iron rod in the place called hell. Just as death for the believer is the beginning. It's the beginning of eternal joy, eternal reward with God in heaven. So death for the unbeliever is also just the beginning. The beginning of an eternity under the wrath and the judgment of God's rod of iron. So the end of verse 15 tells us that, that his purpose in riding out on his white horse is to tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Remember those verses I read from Isaiah 63? Why is your apparel red, your garments like his who treads the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone. And from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger. I trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. What an unpopular message to be preaching in this modern day of all roads lead to heaven. And perhaps this morning your heart is, is rebelling against this vision, this revelation of Jesus on a white horse as he treads the winepress of God's wrath. Listen again to Richard Phillips. These verses show that Jesus is not squeamish when it comes to judgment nor is he aloof from the inflicting of God's personal wrath. The same cannot be said of all who read the Bible. Many recoil at such anti-humanistic teaching with human lives symbolically squashed like ripe and bloody grapes. There are many replies to this objection. One is to point out that this righteous Lord has previously come as the Savior who offers to save these very sinners by shedding his own blood in a sacrifice of love on the cross. Jesus has offered a free and a full forgiveness by the terrible cost to himself that he bore on the cross. But if we refuse his salvation, we deserve his condemnation. It is pointless for us to object out of our low view of the offense of sin when the Bible plainly declares the fury of God's wrath. Unless we face wickedness, the wickedness of sin, and we repent, we will behold in bloody terror the treading of the grapes in the violent retribution of a holy God. Robert Mounts writes, any view of God 
which eliminates judgment and his hatred of sin in the interest of an emasculated doctrine of sentimental affection finds no support in the strong, virile realism of the apocalypse. End quote. There's so much for us to ponder in these verses as we consider the second coming of Jesus Christ, this great rider on a white horse. But John has not yet finished revealing the terrible nature of this great day of vengeance of our God. And so in the second place, and I'll be much more brief in the remaining verses, we see the great supper of God's judgment in verse 17 and 18. Let's just read those verses again. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great." Again, because we've taken a, a number of weeks' break since our study in the first half of chapter 9, we might miss the intended contrast that this verse is drawing back to verses 6 to 9. Just glance back at chapter 19, verse 6. The wonderful account of what was going on in heaven. Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. The bride has made herself ready. Verse 9, the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so as the scene in heaven is filled with this great marriage supper of the, the saints of God as the bride of Christ being married to the Lamb, John now reveals another invitation which goes out to another supper called the great supper of God. But this invitation goes out to the birds of the sky to come and eat the flesh of all the men who are slain on the earth, all those great and small, free and slave, from every status and rank in society. What an incredible contrast is being painted for us by John in such bold colors that it, it should make our stomachs turn. As the saints in heaven are feasting at the table of God's goodness, they are eating the, the delicacies that heaven has to offer. Those on the earth who are not sealed by the blood of the Lamb, who, whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life, they are being eaten by the vultures and the crows and the birds of prey on the earth. Again, we must remember this is apocalyptic language. This is highly symbolic imagery, but the symbols are graphic images of spiritual realities to which these terrible scenes are pointing. The point is clear. It's the utter shame, the utter destruction and condemnation suffered at the end of history by those who opposed Christ and afflicted his people during history. You see, in Old Testament times, there was great dignity in human death through the burial of the body. Even the bodies of unbelievers are made in the image of God and were buried in the ground. But for bodies to be left out in the open for the birds and the wild animals to devour, that was a sign of great contempt and judgment and shame and God's curse. 
And so this is a picture, a symbol of the utter ruin and contempt and cursing of all those who have rejected Christ during his year of redemption, during his year of favor. Millions of people who throughout the ages have scoffed at his free offer of salvation. Some of you sitting right here now, busy scoffing. Millions who have spat in his face, who've struck him on the cheek in the rejection of his grace. They will find themselves exposed to utter shame and eternal condemnation when Jesus returns. Verse 18 is very deliberate to make sure that we understand that not one person nor any earthly category of persons will escape on that day. This is the fate of all men and women, boys and girls, whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life. So then in the final place today, John ends this chapter, the sixth cycle of vision, by revealing to us the great victory over God's enemies. Now many of us, I think if we're honest, we we think of the battle between God and Satan as, as a great battle between kind of two equals. Yeah, we know that Jesus wins in the end, but we think that the battle between God and Satan is gonna be like those long fight scenes at the end of an action movie. You know, where the good guy and the bad guy decide to drop their weapons and then they go hand to hand combat for what seems to be hours. Punching each other, rolling around. One gets the upper hand, then another punch floors him, and then the other one gets the upper hand. Eventually, they roll off the roof of a building onto the floor, and you think they're both dead, and then they get up and they just keep on going. Until eventually, at the end, the good guy wins. Phew. I think much of our modern day obsession with the book of Revelation seems to portray this same kind of idea about the battle of Armageddon. When all the armies of Satan and the beast gather to make war against Jesus and his people. But that is totally not the picture we are given in the book of Revelation. Let's read verse 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done all the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Now we shouldn't be surprised by this anticlimactic end to all of God's enemies, because they are are not equals. They're not created. Jesus on the white horse is the creator. We were already told in chapter 17, verse 14, that they will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them because he is Lord of lords and King of kings. Similarly, as we watch this battle scene unfold, our minds should be drawn back to Psalm 2, the great prophecy of Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? and the people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. His words will terrify them. 
saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun by implication during the year of the Lord's favor, lest he be angry with you and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. But blessed are all who take refuge in him. Again in the New Testament, Paul tells us about the second coming of Jesus in 2 Thessalonians. In verse 8 he says, Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth. And you're brought to nothing by the appearance of his coming. See, the writers of Scripture have never been in doubt as to how this final battle will go down. On the contrary, we've been told again and again that when Jesus arrives on his white horse, the lamb wins. The lamb is all the glory. So that brings us to the end of the sixth cycle of visions and with that, the reality of the day of God's vengeance. Who's that day for? Well, verse 20 explains. It's for those who've been deceived by the false prophet. All the lies that the devil has sold to you, you've been deceived, who've received the mark of the beast and who've worshipped its image. We looked at that a couple weeks ago. And so once again, we see that God's word divides all of humanity into two groups. There's the one group who we saw back in chapter 7, symbolically referred to as the 144,000, the saints of God who have been sealed by the Holy Spirit, who've been born again into the kingdom of the Lamb. We have the name of God, we have the name of Jesus Christ written on our foreheads. Or we belong to the dragon, that ancient serpent called the devil and Satan, we bear the mark of his beast and we worship his image. Chapter 19 reveals the final and the eternal destiny of each group on that day. The contrast of these two eternities could not be further apart and more clear. For the one group, there is salvation, there is glory, there is joy and feasting and praise and worship and celebration in the presence of God forever. And for the other group, there is condemnation, there is shame, anguish, suffering, regret and ruin under the iron rod of God's wrath forever. Now what will make the difference then is what you do with Jesus today. You see, in his first coming, he rode into Jerusalem humbly on a donkey. And he went and died on a cross to shed his blood in your place. And so began the year of the Lord's redemption. But with his second coming, he will arrive on a white horse to crush his enemies under his feet on that great day of vengeance of our God. Either judgment is done on him at the cross for all who believe, 
or judgment is done by him at the trumpet blast on all who harden their hearts. Today is the year of the Lord's redemption. Today is the day of his salvation. Why would you not come to him for salvation? Can I plead you to do that today? Let's close in a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you at the end of a difficult passage of Scripture. And yet we come to you at the end of it grateful that you have included this in your word. Because if you had not included passages like this in your word, we would have all remained deceived by the dragon remain deceived by the beast and the false prophet, thinking that you do not exist and we are the king of our own lives. And true pleasure is to be found in exercising our own self-lordship on this earth. But if we had remained deceived, we would have spent eternity under this judgment and condemnation. And so we thank you today that in your word you have opened up the, the veil for us to see into the very secrets of heaven, to understand what it is that will transpire when you return, so that today we can make right with you. For those of us who are believers, that once again today we can appreciate our great salvation. Lord, as much as I have sought to speak clearly from your word today, we know that those who remain here today who do not believe do so because a veil of darkness is over their hearts and their minds. And as Colin reminded us last week, we pray that you would lift that veil, that your Holy Spirit would shine the light of the Lord Jesus Christ into their hearts today before it is too late, that they might repent, and run to Jesus and be welcomed one day into this marriage feast of the Lamb for all eternity. Lord, please will you accomplish your purposes in our hearts today, for we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.